This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to David Ackert, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. David writes, I discovered your podcast a few months ago and have loved every episode I've heard. I've been procrastinating about becoming a Patreon contributor until the current economic crisis prompted me to do whatever I can to support the things that bring me joy and can help people stay positive in the coming months. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is certainly on that list, so please accept my humble contribution of $3 for now. I promise to do more when the apocalypse is over. So big thanks again to David Ackert for supporting us on Patreon. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 407 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Mike Cole, who you may remember from our panel on soldiers and science fiction back in episode 75, our panel on hackers back in episode 102, our panel on military fantasy back in episode 143, and our panel on the TV show Hunted back in episode 244. He's the author of military fantasy novels such as Shadow Ops Control Point, epic fantasy novels such as The Armored Saint, and military history books such as Legion vs. Phalanx. After a career hunting people in the military, police, and intelligence services, he put those skills to good use on two reality TV shows, The Fugitive Hunting Show Hunted and The UFO Hunting Show Contact. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new novel, 16th Watch, which imagines the Coast Guard's future in outer space. And now here's our interview with Mike Cole. All right, so we're here with Mike Cole. Welcome to the show. Hey, Dave. Thanks very much for having me. Okay, so your new book is called The 16th Watch. So how'd this book come about? It's 16th Watch. Um, how'd it come about? Uh, uh, I've really been a big, uh, military science fiction fan, uh, from the earliest days. Um, I, uh, you know, I loved, uh, Jack Campbell's early stuff, his Lost Fleet stuff. Really like Robert Buettner's early books, uh, the Jason Wander series, Orphanage, Orphan's War. Uh, but one of the things I noticed with military science fiction is that it's focused almost exclusively on the warfighting branches of military service, you know, the Navy, the Marine Corps, the Army, and most importantly on their warfighting functions. And one of the things that's been a big instrumental part of my own military experience is that there's a lot more to warriors than war, right? The military, especially now, but really always, does a lot of different stuff, a lot of other stuff in fighting. And I've never seen a military science fiction book that emphasizes it. And in the United States, we have this unique military branch, the U.S. Coast Guard, which I had the privilege of being an officer in, which operates under a separate title of the U.S. Code. And while it certainly has fought in every violent conflict the United States has ever been involved in, and it is a warfighting branch of service, it re- it is only one of several missions that it does. Um, and I thought, well, that would be a really cool direction in which uh, we could push military science fiction. We could We could move it in that direction. And one, and one of the benefits I had uh, in my own U.S. Coast Guard service was that I served in a law enforcement and search and rescue role. So I was in a small boat squadron and what we basically were like a combined cop car ambulance. We would 
patrol all around New York Harbor doing search and rescue, responding to radio calls for medical emergencies, also doing counterterrorism patrols, also doing law enforcement and security inspections. So um, I sort of had that full 360 view of what it was like, and uh, and I really wanted to push that into the story. And when I started writing it, one of the things that became very apparent to me was that so much of military science fiction is focused on fighting and winning wars, right? Whether they be wars with aliens, wars with other uh, human factions. And what I loved about the way the plot emerged for 16th uh, Watch is that it's a book about avoiding war. It's a book about the, the tension of the plot surrounds de-escalation, not escalation. So where'd you get the idea to set it on the moon? Um, so I, I really wanted to do something near future, um, far future stuff, secondary universe stuff, which, uh, you know, is, is different worlds and involves alien species. That, that's always cool. And I, obviously I enjoy it. Um, I certainly love Macross if people are into anime, which is that story in spades. Um, and, uh, uh, the, the Lost Fleet series, which I cited already is a, definitely a far flung future thing. But, um, I really think that setting it closer to home with a much lower science component, I guess maybe I was reacting to my love and fantasy of lower magic component. Like one of the reasons I loved A Song of Ice and Fire so much is that um, it's really a low magic story, right? The magic ramps up as the series goes along, but it extrapolates so logically from the real world. It feels like the world of the Wars of the Roses, and that's part of the reason why it's so compelling. So I guess this was sort of my low magic equivalent of it. And the moon is the most likely frontier for us in the near future and the most likely frontier where we're going to have conflicts with um, with real adversary nations. All right. So in the book, there's a sort of Cold War style struggle going on between the U.S. and China over this resource helium three, which is described in the mm -hmm. book as being the future of clean energy for the entire world. How um, yep. how likely is that that that's going to happen? I mean, so I, tr I wrote this as a soft science book, Dave. Uh, I, uh, I knew that if I tried to tangle, uh, with hard science, um, that I would get ripped apart, that I don't have the astrophysics and the futurism background to, to really withstand scrutiny. Um, helium three is a thing, right? And there is certainly, um, ideas around it. But as it, in terms of it really, uh, being present on the moon, that's highly disputed. In terms of whether it could really be a clean energy future for the world, also highly disputed. So I definitely did some hand waving there. Uh, how about some of these other, uh, world building aspects? Like you have, um, maser pylons and gardeners. You want to tell us about those? Yeah. So, I mean, again, like it's hand wavy, but it's not crazy hand wavy. So the gardeners are these robot 3D printers. And the idea is that they can use lunar regolith. Regolith is the soil, the silicate soil on the moon. Uh, and they can add plasticizers to it and then use that to build structures without having to risk people uh, having to deal with the moon's very hostile surface. So that by the time human colonists arrive, these habs are up and running for them. Um, that's and again, it's an idea. I didn't make that idea up. I, I named them gardeners, but the idea of robot 3D printers pre-seeding a, a human colonization effort on the moon is not a new idea. That's certainly an idea that many futurists have put forward. Maser pylons, I wanted to think about, so one of the big problems when you deal with propulsion in space, and again, I am not a scientist, so if 
I'm sure Wired has a lot of um, very, very science-heavy listeners who may find flaw in my statement, so I, I definitely fully admit that I'm, there may be errors here, um, is I know that fuel and propulsion is the real challenge in uh, moving in a, a lunar gravity environment. Mo mind you, I don't say a zero-gravity environment. The moon does have some gravity, just not very much. Um, and, and, that it, and so one of the ways around this is the idea of the solar sail, the idea that as an ablative process occurs on a surface, that the off-gassing, that the, 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 the decay of, the, of, the, of the, the ablation causes a propulsion forward. So masers, which are sort of microwave lasers, the idea is that these pylons create these invisible beams, and if you have these wings, in, in my novel they are sort of like beetle wings that uh, can be deployed from the boats, and they have an ablative coating that when it's dipped into that microwave beam, it ablates, and that provides forward propulsion that is a theoretical solution. It is totally hand wavy. Uh, I'm sure real scientists could pick it apart. And again, I didn't make it up. I, I, you know, I did my reading and and knew that it was a futurist idea. But I'm definitely playing fast and loose with it. So, so when you say that you did your reading, are there any particular resources you consulted, or uh, did you read other science fiction set on the moon? Or yes. Yeah, there are two. Uh, there are two resources I consulted. One of them is named Evan Levine, and the other one is named Connor McGrath. Uh, they are both uh, former astrophysicists. Uh, Evan is now a data scientist with the NYPD. I met him when I was on the on the job there. Connor is a mutual friend. He is also a data scientist now. I believe he works with political campaigns. But both of them have long and substantive um, astrophysics backgrounds, and they happen to be personal friends. So uh, I bought him a lot of drinks, and we spent a lot of time at a bar called Charlene's which is in uh, the Grand Army Plaza neighborhood of Brooklyn. And, uh, you know, they answered my questions. And, and Evan was kind enough to look at early versions of the manuscript and give me feedback. So uh, I was just very fortunate that I had access to these two uh, geniuses who were willing to share their, uh, share their time with me. And I guess you named the character McGrath after, after that guy? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a nod to him. Uh, hopefully he's not mad. I didn't ask him his per permission. And there is not a character named Levine. Uh, but yeah, it definitely did inspire me. That's funny that you had the guy who gets shot all the time named after you. <laughs> Connor, if you're listening, uh, no offense, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, speaking of uh, characters getting shot. So yes, yeah, so you have some interesting weapons in this world. Uh, so I've got, you've got dusters, hornet guns, and CO2 lasers. You want to talk about those? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so one of the thing, one of the problems you have with um, using projectile weapons in space uh, is the idea of recoil, right? That any there's no there's nothing to stop you. Um, and I do have this these loosely defined uh, um, spider boots where you the the soles of the boots sort of lock down to the surface. Um, although I don't give any science as to how they work other than to say they use set tools because I don't know how they work. Uh, again, that was hand wavy. But of course, if your soles of your feet are anchored to a surface and you fire a weapon with recoil, then you're going to fly backwards, right? So uh, I thought of two weapons, uh, and these I invented out of whole cloth. One is a duster. This is an, a weapon that fires clouds of metal particles um, by uh, firing a shape charge out of the barrel. So it's a very, very low velocity charge immediately out of the barrel, so it doesn't impart recoil backwards, and then it explodes. And because the charge is shaped, the dust flies forward. And this is all designed to have lethal force, not perforate the hull of a ship, mind you, because it's very small particles moving at a relatively low velocity. But if you're hitting someone in front of you, you should be able to do lethal damage. Um, and a hornet round is the idea that the round exits the muzzle, it almost falls out. 
and then a rocket motor on the back of the round immediately ignites. So yeah, you're having force imparted behind the round, but it's not in any way connected to the weapon, so it doesn't go back to the wielder. And that way, the gun, so it's like a two-stage. Two Pop, the round comes out, boom, the round takes off. But therefore, there's no recoil, and you don't have to worry about being blown back. Uh, how about CO2 lasers? So these are lasers, right? They're emitting light. Um, so there would not be uh, a recoil in, in, the, uh, in the back. I would like to point out that at the time of the book, old CO2 lasers are considered to be antiquated technology. I, I point that out the one time one makes an appearance. But again, science, CO2 lasers are a thing. So if you're a scientist out there who knows something about using a CO2 laser as a weapon, um, uh, you know, please accept my apologies. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that you um, that you say you had to kind of invent those out of whole cloth. Have other um, science fiction books dealt with this issue of recoil in, in low gravity or zero gravity? It seems like an obvious thing that would come up, but um, I don't recall. Yeah, I mean, surely, right? Surely. I. But the thing is, that would make its appearance in hard science fiction books. And generally, that's not the kind of science fiction I've been drawn to. I mean, these would come out of the authors that do short stories in analog. Um, probably a lot of the Bane authors that are hard sci-fi authors. I know Chuck Gannon uh, has a background in rocketry, I believe. Um, and, and I, I think you might see it there, but that's not generally the kind of books I enjoy reading. So, um, excuse me, uh, uh, let me, let me reverse that there. Chuck Gannon is an amazing writer and I really enjoy his writing. I don't mean it like that. I just mean that I generally don't, I'm not drawn to hard science fiction. So, uh, if it's out there, I probably missed it, but I can't imagine it's new. Yeah. So um, so what made you want to write a sort of hard science fiction military kind of book? Um, well, well, so I didn't really want to write a hard science fiction book, right? I wanted to do – well, first of all, I really wanted to write a Coast Guard book because to the best of my knowledge, no one has done a military science fiction book ever about the Coast Guard. S.M. Sterling has the Coast Guard in a time travel story called Island and Sea of Time which is excellent. But in terms of a military science fiction story that is about the military first and foremost, I don't think it's been done. And certainly not focusing on the Coast Guard search and rescue, de-escalation, law enforcement and customs role. In the idea that, yeah, they're a military service, but it's really their other roles that take priority. So that's what I wanted to do. And as I did it and did it on the moon, the, um, the science kind of demanded I pay attention to it. I had a phone call with Jack Campbell, also known, his, his real name is John Hamry, about how he did the Lost Fleet. And one of the pieces of advice he gave me, which I was very grateful for, was that, hey, man, don't try to do the science. If you try to do the science, you're not an astrophysicist. You, you, you don't have time to learn it the way you need to. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to, uh, you know, uh, make a fool of yourself, basically. So I tried very hard to hand wave as much as I could. And he was like, you know, for example, he would say, say thrusters, don't give any more details. Mm -hmm. um, this is why I called them spider boots and didn't give any details. But the truth is, as I worked on the project, you, you really can't hand wave all the science. You have to know some basics about how gravity functions, how convection functions, how hot and cold function, you know, how thrust functions, what a Lagrange point is. Like, there's all kinds of stuff you have to learn. So... You know, I, I wound up striking a balance and I kind of turned out with a medium science fiction book. Look, I, I've said this in lots of interviews. There's a, there's a public scientist. Her name is Katie Mack. Uh, if people don't follow her on Twitter, you must. She's absolutely amazing and one of the best voices for science 
in the public sphere. And unlike Neil deGrasse Tyson, she is not a complete asshole. And um, I really hope that she winds up being the public face of science and astrophysics and that we can move him out of the public eye because he's such a jerk. Um, but she's uh, my, my big fear, of course, because she's, she's such an ardent voice for, uh, you know, science being science, right? And not being compromising about good science that I was just terrified of her reading it. So much so that I think when I started writing the book, I sent her an email to say, hey, I'm writing a science fiction book. Hope you're not mad. Hope you don't read it and tell me I suck. And of course, she's so delightful. She said, no, I'm going to do that to you. Incidentally, when I um, started on Contact, this, this nutty UFO show I did for Discovery, I sent her a similar email. <laughs> and uh, her response was like, Mike, I have a friend who's doing the Bigfoot show on Discovery <laughs> Channel. I'm still friends with her. I'll still be friends with you. It's entertainment. I get it. Don't worry. So, But yeah, it's a fear. Well, well, since you brought up the contact, why don't we just get into that quickly? I just watched—I I watched sure. the first episode last night, yeah. and um, I was just curious. I mean, yeah, do you—I um, don't know—is there anything that people should should know about? Uh, was there anything uh, that you came across in the course of the show that kind of gave you pause, or that was the hardest to explain, or anything like that? Uh, no, absolutely not. I I do not believe in aliens. I have never believed in aliens. I think if they're out there, they're bacteria light years away. We'll never see them in our lifetime. Um, the show is a sh it's entertainment, right? I mean, they're uh, they're trying to tell a story. They're trying to entertain. We shoot for every hour we shoot, maybe a minute makes it into the final cut, over which I have no input and no control. Um, in the end, when you're offered the lead on a major network television show, you say yes. So uh, I went into it as a hardened skeptic. I remained a hardened skeptic throughout the entire show. I am a hardened skeptic now. Um, I certainly think we made a wonderful, incredibly entertaining show that a lot of people really enjoyed. I loved doing it. I loved working with everybody at Cargo 7 and Discovery. It was a blast. I would do it again. I love doing television. But I am dead dead on the line that we have not made contact with extraterrestrials. We will not be making contact with extraterrestrials in my lifetime, probably in any of your listeners' lifetime. And I certainly hope that is not the impression anybody <laughs> got from watching it. So, so when you're talking about bacteria light years away, would you say you're a proponent of sort of the um, the solution to the Fermi paradox that, uh, that I think it's a biogenesis, the or origination of life is just extraordinarily rare and might only happen once per galaxy or, or something very like the, that. Right. The thing with the, the problem with the Fermi paradox and, and those kinds of speculations, one of the things I've learned as an historian that is, that is really one of the most valuable things. And by the way, it's also something I've learned as, as uh, doing police work. And it's also something I've learned as an intelligence officer is that you have got to be able to confront. I don't know. You have to be able to look at a problem and a question and say, I don't know the answer. And no, how, how, no matter how much I speculate on this answer, no matter what evidence I collect, at least with the tools available to me right now and the evidence available, available to me right now, I'm not going to be able to answer this question. And you have to sit with that discomfort. So the answer is I don't know. And neither do you and neither does anybody, neither does Katie Mack, the greatest astrophysicist I know. Um, we can't answer that question. We don't have enough information. All we can do is to continue to pursue science-based, rational, skeptical approaches to investigating uh, our universe and, 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 and hope that more evidence will emerge someday that can get us closer to answering those questions. But I refuse to speculate because any speculation would be just that. Any speculation, and in my case, 
uninformed speculation. Um, I think it was a German football coach, a very famous one, and they were asking him about coronavirus at the beginning of the pandemic. And he turned to the journalist and he was very upset. And he said, why are you talking to me about coronavirus? I'm a football coach. I know about football. Ask a doctor. It's the same thing here. I'm a science fiction writer um, uh, without any real uh, hardened science background. I am the wrong person to ask about the possibility of extraterrestrial life, even having hosted a television show. What I am in the end is an entertainer. So if people have questions about how to entertain, then I might have some expertise. But here, the only thing I can say, honestly, is I just don't know. All right. Well, then let's get back to a subject that you're a real expert on, which is your new book. Um, so, so 16th watch, uh, one of the lines in it, and you, you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but one of the characters said, we, we need less militarization of space, not more. What do you feel? How do you feel about that sentiment? I, so of course that for me is a creed occur about earth. So one of the things that's um, been a real awakening for me in the last few years is, um, post nine 11, this country went insane and we deified military service and police service to a point that is, in my opinion, sick. Um, and we gave the police and the military such reverence that um, they can do no wrong. This is why the NYPD and, and, frankly, police departments all over the country are out of control. This is why you have the murder of unarmed black men across the country um, and police being exonerated for what are clearly uh, murders. Um, is because we have gone insane and we have uh, done this veneration. And in the beginning stages of this, I benefited from this veneration. I can't tell you the number of times that I would go to a hotel and get a free upgrade, you know, my meals free, board the plane first. People would, if I went around with my ruck in Iraq, which had my blood type on it, you know, the people at the next table would buy me a meal. Uh, Fleet week, you walk around New York in your uniform and you're treated like a god. Um, and this this cult of thank you for your service when the reality of it is a lot of people in the military work desk jobs where they're in no danger at all, whereas a sanitation worker might be at greater risk or a teacher who works in a bad neighborhood. Um, it's just, it's sick. It's not okay. And um, I benefited from it from a long time. There's also, we, we hear a lot about toxic masculinity uh, now, and I've been thinking a lot um, about my role in that and what I can do to reverse it. And I've realized that, um, you know, in America right now, we venerate the military archetype to the point where you have guys that have never served, that are walking around with tactical packs, with subdued American flags Velcroed on their ball caps, wearing 5'11 pants as if they were in Iraq, and they weren't. They're, this is a fashion thing now, and it's an outgrowth of this military um, veneration. There was a great article in The New Republic written by Adam Weinstein, who is my editor there, when I published my article about uh, the, the far right's use of, of Sparta, the myth of ancient Spartans as, a, as an icon. And he talked about the, 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 the fad of beards coming out of the SEAL team community and the special warfare community across all five branches, and I agree with him. Um, so I've been working really hard to demilitarize myself um, and to be a voice as a prior military guy, as law enforcement, um, to tell people that, like, this is not appropriate. It's not acceptable. Um, and this sick veneration uh, that we have has given us, you know, Trump's America. It, is, it has given us this really dangerous, um, in my opinion, really unhealthy climate. 
and that we have to do everything we can to claw, to claw it back. And one of the things I've done is I've demilitarized my wardrobe. I, I don't wear any of my ops gear anymore. Uh, I don't wear, I don't use tactical packs. I got rid of my 511 watch. I, um, you know, I, I work really hard to keep that crap out of my clothing. Um, because, you know, I, I don't want society to be militarized. So that's kind of a long way of saying that, um, when, when Oliver is saying that she wants space to militarize, this is me pouring out into my fiction, a social goal I have. I want America demilitarized. I want the military back in the role it served or it should serve, which is a subordinate arm that serves defensive purposes, uh, under strict civilian control where we treat military members with respect, just like we treat all people, but not with this sick worship that uh, currently dominates American culture. Well, since you mentioned that Atlantic article, why don't you just go ahead and um, explain for people who missed it what, what that was all about? So it's a it's a short uh, piece which is meant to summarize a book I have coming out possibly this year, but maybe next called The Bronze Lie, Shattering the Myth of Spartan Warrior Supremacy. Basically, what I do is I analyze Sparta's complete military record and prove that they were not the super warriors that they're reputed to be and that most people believe they were based on Frank Miller's uh, hit comic 300 that was then made into an, an even bigger movie by Zack Snyder. Um, because that symbology of the Sparta Spartans as the world's ultimate badasses has been appropriated by the extreme right, not just in America, but around the world. And they're held up as a symbol. So in that, um, in that, uh, New Republic article, I prove a, that, that the Spartans w were not this and B, um, I show that they are used as this cult-like symbol of the far right, and I show how disastrously unhealthy that is. And in the book, I will prove uh, using Sparta's, you know, full military record uh, that you know they were they were not awful, they were not great, they were okay. Um, and hopefully that will strike a blow toward. Um, and and I do this for a couple of reasons. One is I want to defang the far right, of course. But another reason is. I want normal human beings to be able to be interested in and take inspiration from the ancient Spartans. They don't belong to the Proud Boys. They don't belong to the Identitarians. They don't belong to the Oath Keepers. They belong to all of us. And we all have a right to be interested in and inspired by Spartans in their flawed humanity because they are cowards just like we are. They are greedy just like we were. Excuse me. They were greedy just like we, we are. They were, they showed fear just like we did. They loot, lost just like we do. And they also were capable of heroics and great things. And I think that flawed humans are so much easier to connect with and take inspiration from than this crazy idea of mythical super warriors, which nobody ever was, let alone the Spartans. I mean, could you talk a bit about the response to the article? Cause I feel like, um, didn't you get, it, it got a, a big reaction, right? And was it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, so there were there were two major rebuttals, at least two. Uh, one in the Washington Examiner, where the author he 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 created a straw man, said I was saying something I wasn't saying. So, you know, I'm not interested in that. That's intellectually irresponsible. But there was a Rhodes scholar whose name I'm forgetting, and I apologize to that person because it was a good article. He attacked my piece on the merits. He made a historical argument. I disagreed with him largely because he leaned on Plutarch, and I don't agree that Plutarch is a reliable source for classical Sparta because he's a Hellenistic writer. In other words, he was writing much later, and I but the point is that was an intellectually sound and responsible counter to my piece. But um, 
mostly there was an uproar on the internet to the point where I got a lot of death threats, um, which was fascinating. And it really underscored to me, uh, that I was doing the right thing, you know, that people feel so strongly about this myth of Spartan supremacy that they're willing to send me death threats. Um, you know, that, that showed me that I'm really mining a vein here that, that needs to be explored. So it, it, it only made me dig in and, and, uh, and want to push on with it. I mean, there was one thing that David Frum tweeted or retweeted of yours. Was it that or was it something else? No, David. So David Frum, um, I can't remember. I mean, a lot of people retweeted that the, that that's part of article was good. Um, obviously, uh, Molly Crabapple, I was incredibly gratified that she said nice things about it. Molly Crabapple, for those of your listeners probably all know who she is. She's one of the great, uh, fine artists and political artists of our age. And she then transitioned smoothly into investigative journalism. It's published uh, a couple of books. Uh, Brothers of the Gun is, uh, I think, her latest, and she's working on one about the Yiddish labor Bund movement. Everyone should check out Molly and follow her on Twitter. She's really um, an amazing voice. Uh, but David Frum read my previous history book, Legion versus Phalanx, and praised it on Twitter. So uh, I'm certainly hoping that he will read The Bronze Lie when it comes out. Ruben Gallego, who is uh, one of the congressmen representing Arizona, uh, when I announced the book, said he was interested in it. Um, and he and I have maintained a friendship on Twitter, which is I was very gratifying. I mean, uh, I never thought in my life I'd be friendly with a congressman, but he's a really cool dude and a uh, prior Marine. So uh, excuse me. I don't know if you I don't know if you can say prior Marines. I, I'm, he'll probably get mad at me for that. But uh it's nice to have that friendship. I mean, there was another article of yours I remember reading where it was about sort of your take on PTSD. And I felt like that informed 16th Watch a lot. Was that something that you kind of had in mind as you were writing it? Yeah. So I did an essay on my blog, which is probably one of the most successful pieces of writing I've ever done. I only wish that I had some way to uh, put it in official publication, but you put something on your blog and you gave your rights away. Uh, it was reprinted as an article in by the Institute of Combat Stress, which is a, I believe, a nonprofit that is affiliated with the U.S. Army that uh, deals with PTSD. Um, and the basic point of the article was that um, the way I experience PTSD and the way I view it is different from what I was hearing people say it was. And my idea was that it was a slow and subtle shift of perspective that's permanent, that you see the world differently, and that trying to treat it as a medical disorder instead of saying, hey, your worldview shifted, how do you set goals differently? You know, that, that maybe wasn't the best way to approach it. That exploded um, and got a, a ton of attention. It apparently resonated with a lot of people, and it has absolutely informed how I, uh, how I write. And it certainly informed um, Oliver's experience, Jane Oliver's experience as the protagonist in 16th Watch. She has an extremely traumatic experience in the prologue of the book that kind of leads to her whole character arc. And I didn't want her to get over that experience, right? Because I don't believe you do get over the, that experience. I believe that that experience changes you intimately and permanently, and that you have to find a way to navigate forward as a different person, which is, it may sound the same, but it really isn't. It's a very, very different approach. I mean, I, I don't have any military experience at all. And so reading the book, one thing that kind of struck me is how... um insubordinate, I guess you would say she is throughout, you know, increasingly as the book goes on, or, you know, how she, you know, relies on her own judgment over necessarily what her orders are. And I'm just curious if that's something that you see as a, a quality of good leadership, or is that more of sort of a dramatic necessity for to, just to tell a good story or? I'd say halfway between. Um, uh, I certainly think anyone, and I'm famous for writing in, well, 
that's, I'm flattering myself. I'm not famous <laughs> at all, but, uh, I, I, uh, I frequently write characters that, um, are insubordinate. Oscar Britton, the protagonist of my, uh, Shadow Ops trilogy is certainly one of the most insubordinate military members in history. Uh, and Oliver is the same way. Of course, in real life, militaries can't function that way. Um, uh, the special operations community has a, a great uh, deal more latitude, but Oliver is not a member of that community, uh, even in this story. Um, so it's about 50% dramatic license. However, I will say that, um, anyone who reads about Patton, um, will see that there are, uh, unusual charismatic leaders that take a lot of liberties. And also that the culture of the United States military is falsely believed to be a lot more rigid than it actually is. Um, it certainly is more rigid than civilian life. But um, military members are human beings, um, and there are plenty of human beings that flout rules and show initiative, and human beings uh, are flexible in how we deal with them. And uh, I, as a commander, certainly had to show, uh, excuse me, a commander is a rank in the Coast Guard. When I say a commander, I don't mean that I was had the rank of commander. I mean that I led my unit. Um, I had to show a lot of flexibility in how I dealt with individual service members. I had 57 sailors under me when I led the reserve at um, Station New York. So um, I'd say it's about 50% real and 50% um, dramatic necessity. I mean, Jane Oliver in the book, she says uh, in a speech that the Coast Guard is the best branch of the military. How do you feel about that? I couldn't agree more. Um, and I really genuinely believe that. And I think that even if I had never joined, I would still believe that. Um, the U.S. Coast Guard, um, it's the smallest. It has the smallest budget. People always talk about the Marine Corps as the hardest to get into and the most elite. That is not true. The Coast Guard is the hardest to get into and the most elite. Coast Guard recruiters basically don't recruit because they don't need to. Um, we are turning away people. And uh, the Coast Guard has the most diverse mission. All four branches of the military kill people and destroy property, right? Anyone can do that. And the Coast Guard can do that too. But uh, not all four branches of the military have this unique component. The Coast Guard can enforce laws on U.S. persons. We act as federal police, which nobody else does. We have customs authority, which nobody else does. We do life-saving missions as part of our core mission that nobody else does. We have science icebreaking, marine life protection uh, missions that nobody else does. The Coast Guard, you can do it all in the Coast Guard in, in a way that you really can't in the other four branches. In fact, all four branches of the, that are under the Department of Defense function under Title 10 of the U.S. Code, which is warfighting authority. Only the Coast Guard has its own separate code, Title 14, which specifically lays out our authorities. But the Coast Guard functions under Title 10, Title 14, Title 18, and Title 50, meaning that not only does the Coast Guard have its own unique Coast Guard authority, but it has federal law enforcement authority, U.S. Customs authority, foreign intelligence authority, and foreign warfighting authority. So it really is the most versatile um, and the most elite of all five branches of service in, in the country. And I, if anybody out there is thinking of joining, uh, absolutely do not join the military until Trump is out of power. You will be a force for evil. Um, but once he is out of power, you should absolutely be looking to join the U.S. Coast Guard. How likely do you think it is that the Coast Guard will operate in space, as in your book, and, and does the creation of the Space Force make that less likely? The creation of the Space Force is a farce. The, the Space Force will never function in space. Um, it is, it's a joke. Uh, it is a waste of money. It will never do anything. It is uh, a personal sop to the ego of Donald Trump uh, and the first rational human being who comes into power 
if we are able to retain our democracy, which I'm not certain we will be able to, um, it will be gotten rid of justifiably. And I certainly hope that the officers who sullied their honor by being involved in it will be immediately cashiered. Um, but uh, all five branches of the U.S. military have astronaut programs, which are responsibly run. Um, and I certainly think that if we ever do project military force into space in the future, and I certainly hope that we do not, um, it will be the astronaut programs. I saw an interview with you from a, a few years ago where you, you said that the title of the book was SAR-1. Could you talk about yes. how it became 16th Watch? Well, this is my agent's idea. So I liked SAR-1, SAR-1. Uh, that was the search and rescue one. That's the boat designator of the lead boat in any search and rescue operation. So each boat has usually a five-digit de designator beginning with CG. So when our when we're doing work on the boats, whenever we refer to them, we call them CG-359 or whatever. But when you're doing a SAR launch and you're going out, you're you know, you're SAR-1, you're the launch boat. And and one of the most thrilling, still gives me chills whenever I hear it, if you're at a Coast Guard boat station, the klaxons will sound and it will say SAR-1 launch, um, which is a line I even use in the book. So I want to call it SAR-1. But both uh, Angry Robot and my agent disagreed. They thought that the acronym would be confusing, that it sounds like SARS, the uh, known pandemic um, and especially now in this time of pandemic, I guess I'm glad I didn't name the book that. And uh, Joshua Bilm is my agent in consultation, I believe, with other personnel in the office suggested that we call it 16th Watch because of the 16 sunrises and sunsets that you see on the International Space Station. And, you know, sometimes people know better than you. It was a better title. It really was. So I agreed to it. Uh, you're work Are you working on a sequel? It's like 16th. Sunrise or something? Yeah, so I'm, right, yeah, so I'm on the hook for a sequel, 16 Sunrise, but I don't want to lie to anybody. Um, I have bitten off way more than I can chew. I have The Bronze Lies, the most ambitious project I ever undertook. Um, I have it mostly done, but the editing is, is just absolutely painstaking. And then I also, uh, started a comic series, Hundred Wolves, the first issue coming on May 12th from Vault Comics. And that is taking up a lot of my time and attention. So I have not even started. I have a treatment and an outline, uh, a very short outline, not my comprehensive outlines that I usually work from for 16th Sunrise. But it's going to be a while before I can get started. And I got to be honest, um, with the pandemic, uh, I think I'm not the only writer who's having a really hard time concentrating right now. Um, it's extremely depressing and, and anxious out there. And I'm certainly working and I'm working every day. Um, but, uh, I'm not, um, I'm not flying, I think the way I would under other circumstances. So, um, you know, I'll get to it. Uh, but it, it, it I, I beg people's patience in the short term. What is the, you want to say more about that comic book? Sure. So, um, hundred wolves is, uh, I, th I thought, what do young people, you know, what are, what are young people out there really want? Um, what do they want in a comic book? And I thought, a story about the Ottoman-Polish-Ukrainian border in the 17th century. That's really what sure, today's sure. youth yeah. are crying, crying out for. Um, no, but seriously, I, uh, I'm just obsessed with the Siege of Vienna in 1683. I mean, most people have never even heard of it. And it's this incredible story in which, you know, the, what, what, I mean, I, I hate the term the Western world because west of what? Like, it's total crap. But the, what, what a lot of scholars consider the Western world, I don't, really was on the verge of like going out. If the Ottomans had succeeded in taking Vienna, um, the, the argument can be made that, you know, 
the Ottoman Empire might have stretched eventually all the way to the shores of France. Uh, and that is an amazing thing to contemplate. I and mean, it was a touch and go thing. Vienna almost fell. And it was this unprecedented, uh, working together effort of a lot of different nations. But it culminated in this charge of these Polish winged knights. And they really did wear fake wings on their backs back then. So it really was a charging army of angels, which is an incredible visual sight. And when you look at the visuals here, Turkish Janissaries, Cossacks with these, what we would consider punk rock hairdos these days, um, and these winged knights, the visuals are amazing, which is why I wanted to do it as a comic book. So I kind of wrote this Count of Monte Cristo meets saga story with this badass husband-wife duo that want to leave the life of raiding Cossacks behind. So they take land from a Polish knight to raise goats and raise their daughter. But of course, you know, they're known as badasses. So both their old Cossack raiding band wants them back. And the knight that they took land from, he wants to put them to work doing violence. And the old life won't let them go. Um, and this evolved into a comic book that I couldn't sell. I couldn't sell it for years. Because, like, if you come to somebody with, hey, I got a comic book about 17th century Eastern Europe. And I've never written one a comic book before, by the way. I have no rep in comics. I'm a novelist and I've been on TV. Most comic publishers look at you like, you, like you're an idiot, you know. But I ran at Emerald City Comic Con two years ago. And I see the booth, and there's Tony Akins. And Tony Akins is this comic book artist who I have admired for years. He did my favorite run of Wonder Woman. He did Hellblazers. He did Fables. Well, not all of it, but some of my favorite runs of Fables, it's World War II stories. Um, so I, I just loved his pencils and inks. And I went over to him. Well, first, I, I was like, ah, oh, you know, he's going to think I'm crazy. And then I was like, ah, screw it. And I ran back to the hotel, went to the business center, Dropped like 50 bucks to print out my pitch package that I had been unable to sell this comic with. Ran back to his booth and handed it to him and said, Hey, I know you don't know me from, from anybody, but I love your work. I'd love to work with you. I'm a real writer. No, I've never done a comic before, but I think this is a great one. And you know, if you want to work with me, that would be awesome. And I walked away and he, Dave, he was looking at me like I had three heads. <laughs> I mean, so I thought, well, that's that, you know, he's not going to, and I forgot about it. And I got home from Emerald City and I had an email. And it just so happened that he's a huge fan of Sergei Eisenstein and like Stalinist era cinema and Soviet history. And he was one of the few people who would really get into a story in Eastern Europe and he's an Air Force vet. So he had that. So he loved a war story. He was like, out of all the comic book artists I could have gone up to, he was probably the only one who would have been jazzed by this idea. And so he signed on with me. He took a chance on this unknown writer. And once I had Tony Akins, who's a big deal in comics, signed on, I was able to sell it immediately. And and now we're, man, the first issue is amazing. I've already gotten some great reviews from it. Um, and that'll be out in the middle of May. Was that, um, was the, what was the process like of transitioning to writing a comic or graphic novel when you'd never done it before? So I want to be clear. Um, a lot of people think that if you're a writer, you're a writer. And that is not true. Writing short stories is not writing novels, although it's closer to writing a novel than writing a comic book. And writing novels is not writing comic books. Luckily, I, I'm pretty good at knowing that. Um, I'm pretty good at understanding that. Um, so I knew I had to go to school. So 
I began reading comics very critically before I tried to write the scripts for Hundred Wolves. Um, and sort of reading it like a boxer watching an opponent's fight videos to understand how they were working. And then I started reading Scott McCloud's instructional work. So Scott McCloud is an amazing comics writer and possibly artist. Yeah, I think artist too. Uh, my best, my favorite work by him, if you just want to read his comics, is The Sculptor. That's a graphic novel, which is the size of an encyclopedia, but you'll wish it was twice as long. Fair warning, gets, have some tissues handy. It's really sad, but it's so good. Um, and then he also wrote a number of instructional books, but my favorite one is Understanding Comics, which is a book that is a comic. It's a comic, but it teaches you how to write comics. And uh, so I went to school, and it was many, many months of um, teaching myself the medium before I even attempted to write scripts. And even then, um, Peter Brett, who a lot of people know is my best friend, he's a novelist who also did a run of Red Sonia for Dynamite Comics, Red Sonia Unchained. So he had some experience writing comics. And so I was able to send him my scripts and get some feedback from him, which helped. So I wouldn't say that I had really developed strong expertise. The only way to do that is to write and publish comics. And Adrian Wassel, my editor at Vault, um, has been an incredible mentor and instructor who's really helping making my scripts better. Um, so if you like Hundred Wolves, the story, uh, that's a lot of Adrian's hand there, not just mine. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, getting back to the 16th Watch, I wanted to ask you, so in the in this imaginary future that you present, the most popular reality TV show is called Boarding Action, and it's sort of like, uh, you know, capturing ships in space with boarding parties. Could you just talk about um, that idea and why you wanted that as an element in the story? Um, so I was thinking about, um, I don't know if you've ever seen World's Best Ranger. Have you ever even heard of it? I haven't heard of it. There was one I was going to mention actually called Combat Missions that I used to watch. That was the only one that really came to mind, you know, sort of a similar thing that really came to mind. So World's Greatest Ranger is a military internal competition, um, and it's put on by the Rangers. I think the 75th Ranger Regiment does it. And it's, at least when I was in, it was popular in the spec ops community. And it's a ranger competition, right? You know, you go do ranger courses, and you shoot, and you run, and you climb shit, and, you know, it's almost like a like a mud run on steroids. Um, but by the time I got into it, all five branches were competing, and then also, like, federal police were competing. And then, so I started thinking, man, well, what if that, you know, what if like really talented civilians got involved in that? And the idea, you know, spun out from there. Um, it's a, it's a, you know, but really that if people Google world's greatest ranger, uh, you'll sort of see the, the genesis of it. Why do you think that, have you heard of combat? Have you ever heard of combat missions? They had the guy. No, that, that I had not heard. No. Um, they had the guy who was the, the Navy SEAL um, competitor from the first season of Survivor, who was sort of the, you know, the drill sergeant type person. I thought, it, and they had different, you know, it was like, um, you know, people from all different special operations units competing against each other, doing missions with kind of laser tag guns. Um, I thought right. it was pretty cool. But I, I was, you know, do you have any thoughts about why shows like that aren't more popular? Like, I've never even heard of, like I said, the uh, the world's greatest ranger. Um, where it seems like, you know, um, there, there might be an audience for something like that, but I think it's two things. I think it's two things. Um, one is I think currently, um, I think the military is a conservative institution. Um, every military has a MOPIC office, every branch of the military, every branch of government period has a MOPIC office. In fact, that's how I got, must've gotten on hunted, uh, uh, is that, um, you know, um, Endemol Shine, the production company that did hunted, 
very likely went to CIA's MOPIC office and said, who, what human targeters, uh, targeting analysts, you know, do you have that you think would be good on television? And someone must have given him my name, right? I don't know how else I would have gotten on there. Uh, so, um, I think that, you know, a production company, if, if an unscripted television production company made the right pitch to the Army's MOPIC to expand the world's greatest, to televise world, world's greatest ranger and expand it to a civilian audience, I think, I think they could make that happen. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you view it, the military is a conservative institution. Um, and, uh, uh, they may be resistant to it, uh, at some points, but there certainly are a lot of military and civilian combined events like the, um, Tunnel Towers run here in New York. And, uh, there's the Bataan March, which is a combination of military people do it, civilians do it, everybody does it. Um, and I think that kind of stuff is really important because the greater the degree of separation between the civilian and military population, the easier it is, uh, for the military to, A, to have this fetish, sick fetishization of the military, which we currently see in our society, because you're a lot less likely to fetishize people that you know. And, uh, B, you really, uh, run the risk of the military. You know, that's how you get juntas when the military is so separate from its connection to the civilian population that it, you know, it sort of feels like it isn't obligated to them. So I think it would be a really positive thing. Um, one thing I want to ask you is that, uh, the, the books that this kind of reminded me the most of, I mean, it's pretty different from them, but were, were Ender's Game and Robert Asprin's Fool's Company. I'm sure you've read Ender's Game, but have you, have you ever, uh, read Fool's Company? I haven't read Fool's Company, but I have read his, um, myth series, a lot of his myth books. Um, I think I, you know, the ones with the ridiculous punny titles. Oh, that's my favorite. I think I probably read series growing up. So yeah, I'm well, well acquainted with them. Oh, I, I probably read like, I must have read five of them, but it was so long ago. You know, my brain is fossilized, so I just don't remember. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so after the, after the myth series was going, which is a, you know, sort of sword and sorcery heroic fantasy series, he did the Fool's Company series, which is sort of, uh, humorous, um, military SF. And the first one I think is really, really good. It's called Fool's Company. And, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a similar sort of thing where there's a, a dysfunctional army unit and this commander has to come in and, and whip everybody into shape. So, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. You might, you might want to check that out. I will. Um, so yeah, so I haven't talked to you. Um, you know, you were the, I was actually surprised that the last time you were on the show was three years ago. It doesn't seem like it was that long. Um, no, I, and I, I'm, I'm grateful that you keep having me on. I love this show and I love coming on it. So I really, uh, I really appreciate the repeat invites. Oh yeah. But so, um, you know, last I heard, I thought you were working for NYPD and stuff, but it sounds like you're now doing, uh, you said criminal investigation for banks. Uh, so, um, yeah, so with the NYPD, I was planning on staying with them uh, as long as I could, but Trump's election uh, made it impossible. Um, the NYPD is probably the most diverse workforce I've ever been in. Uh, but politically, especially at the leadership level, it isn't, um, it's, it's very, uh, monoculturally for Donald Trump. And we certainly see the PBA and the SBA have, um, you know, used a lot of really, uh, in my opinion, horrifically inappropriate language. Um, they declared war on Mayor de Blasio. They have refused to accept responsibility for the murder of Eric Garner. They have, um, defended Dan Pantaleo. They, in fact, were horrified when he was fired. So basically the, the Patrolman's Benevolent Association and Sergeant's Benevolent Association believe it's okay to murder 
an unarmed black man and that even losing your job is too much. So, um, no, I can't be associated with an organization like that. Um, so I had to leave and uh, I left and I, uh, luckily have very, very marketable skills. And, uh, I now do, uh, intelligence and criminal investigation for the private sector. So how does that compare to, uh, how does the private sector compare to the government? So I was, it's interesting. I was really shocked. Um, when you work your whole life in government and I had spent my whole life in government, um, you really come to believe that the private sector is hell, that you're going to be worked around the clock, that no one's going to care about you, that people get fired for nothing, that, um, you know, that it's so much harder. And the exact opposite has been true. Um, I have never been treated with more respect, more professionalism, finally paid what I'm worth. Uh, the job conditions are so much better. I get 10 times more done in an hour of working uh, for my current clients than um, I ever did in a day working for the NYPD or any other government organization. Um, and in fact, um, since Donald Trump's election um, and and the four, going through the four years that we've been through, um, I really have come to uh, be ashamed of my government service and to feel like I was a sucker and that I was um, a dupe and a fool to have believed in uh, these ideas. I have the words duty, honor, country tattooed on my shoulder. And when I look in the mirror and see that, I'm humiliated um, and ashamed that I could have ever believed that. Um, and I'm, I feel certainly like going to the private sector is, uh, it's a progressive step for me. Like, I feel like at least now um, I'm, I'm at least getting paid what I'm worth and uh, uh, protecting uh, clients directly and not um, being part of an institution that is, you know, that while it does some good is basically a force for evil. So so if, if people are listening to this and they want to object strongly to stuff you're saying, uh, how should they do that that isn't contacting me personally about it? <laughs> I mean, people can always email me, um, but uh, I'm, I'm not saying anything on the show that I haven't said on Twitter. All right. Well, so we're almost out of time. Um, so maybe on a, on a more cheerful note, can you tell us about other some other projects you're working on? Because I think you're... Um, you're working on some alternate history stuff. And did you say something about having shows with sci-fi or something like that? Uh, so I, uh, I, Discovery has not yet officially canceled contact, right? So theoretically they could still do a second season, but the longer you go between seasons one and two, um, uh, without, um, uh, the longer you go between seasons one and two without, um, having a second season, you're losing audience share. So, so much time, you know, people are, are less likely to tune into a season if they've forgotten the first season. So, because so much time has passed, you know, this makes me believe that it will not be renewed. So, I just put up uh, my casting reel on my website. It's under the press and contact section if, if there are production companies that want to work with me. And I'm going to certainly be hustling for my next show. Uh, and how about, do you have some alternate history stuff you're working on? Sort of in the Harry Turtledove mode? Uh, I have an alternate history project uh, that I want to work on. Uh, I actually wound up, I uh, wasn't able to restrain myself uh, and did 1,500 words on it last night. But uh, we'll see. Um, you know, I'm on the hook for other stuff before that. All right, cool. And so then do you have any, just any other final thoughts or anything else you want to mention? I just want to let folks know if they want to get in touch with me. Uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Mike Cole, M-Y-K-E-C-O-L-E. Uh, and you can go to my website, MikeCole.com. So, yes, yeah, so we've been speaking with Mike Cole about his new book, 16th Watch. 
So, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Mike Cole for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.